Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Hollis Wong Ware is on the show today. Based in Los Angeles, Hollis is a multi-talented musician, singer, songwriter, spoken word artist, and public speaker. When Hollis is not writing and composing her own music, she collaborates with individuals and organizations to develop their creative voices and amplify them for social change. Hollis is a member of the band Flavor Blue, a Seattle-based electronic R&B trio. She's also worked extensively with other artists, including Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. In fact, she was nominated for a Grammy with them for her songwriting and vocals on their 2012 album, The Heist. In this interview, Hollis talks about how she got involved in the making of that album and how she came to write and perform the hook on the song White Walls. She also talks about what the Grammy nomination did for her career and what it didn't do. Whenever possible, I'd like to conduct these interviews in the creative space of my guest, ideally in their home, studio, or workspace. And Hollis was so kind to invite me into her home recording studio for this talk. I had a great time getting to know her, hearing about her journey into music, and found her to be extremely bright, articulate, and charismatic. If you go to the show notes for the episode on the DreamPath website, you'll find a YouTube link to a TEDx talk she did in 2016, which shows how much stage presence and charisma she has. She's a natural storyteller and a truly gifted musician and artist. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging talk with Hollis Wong Ware. Well, Hollis, uh, thanks for talking to me and inviting me into your home and your studio. We're here in Los Angeles, California, and uh, we're going to talk about your career and your journey into the arts. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when did you come to Los Angeles? I came to LA in July of 2015. So yeah drove my Honda Accord down from Seattle and moved into a little, a tiny little room in Highland Park. And then I've been here in East Hollywood for three and a half years. What brought you here? Um, I think a few factors uh, influenced my decision to move to LA. I had been in Seattle for almost 10 years and I had had a really incredible time growing as an artist in a way that I never would have anticipated had I been asked to predict it when I had moved to Seattle to go to Seattle University in 2005. Um, I really never thought like an independent, I, I never thought a musical career was possible for me, let alone like what even an independent music career meant. Um, but I think after 10 years in Seattle, there was a couple of factors. Um, one, I think I was just personally really ready for a change, for a change of scenery, a change of pace and, and, a, and a new challenge. I think I had gotten really comfortable in Seattle in many ways and I have such like a rich community there, um, but I think because I was so comfortable, I wasn't growing um, as much as I was really wanting for myself as somebody in their late 20s. Um, and then I think secondly, I was really enamored with the idea of being a professional songwriter um, and the idea of really like growing my legacy as somebody who um, like facilitates and creates incredible original music with other people um, and for other people and for other artists. Um, and I knew that LA was the only place that I could be to really make that dream come to life. So I kind of 
moved here like most people do most creatives do in LA just with the with the with the fledgling dream um and and realizing you know once you get down here like what is a dream interrogating like what it really even means to to make your dream come to life but um that was my impetus so has it been uh has it opened things up for you like you thought it would has my dreams have my dreams come true um you know it's funny I think that's like a lot of what I uh think about and interrogate within myself um as I'm down here I think in LA the environment down here can feel really isolating um and it is truly like a very you know dispersed decentralized place and you know versus a place like Seattle where I came from where everything feels really centralized and really close and really tight-knit um and what I kind of realized was like the ways in which I thought success would be crystallized or the idea of like having a win um like it's all incredibly relative and nebulous <laughs> like anything in life I think like you have to define it for yourself and it's not going to just like slap you in the face or give you an award right um and I think for me when I you know, it's like anything when you're in it, all you can see is what's ahead. And then when you take a step back and you look at the journey, you realize how much you've ascended both as a person and in your profession as well. So I'm quite far away from where I want to be as a, as a professional and in my accomplishments as a professional. Um, but taking a step back and looking at what I've been able to accomplish in the last four years. Um, I'm really, yeah, I'm really proud of myself. I, I think what I wanted to manifest was creating a really close, trusting, creative partnership with an, like an artist on the rise who um, I really believed in and that I felt like I could help influence and mold. Um, and, and, and also obviously like be fed by that collaboration myself. And that has definitely actualized. That has definitely happened. Um, and I've also gained a lot more autonomy in my own creative process while being down here in LA. Like when I moved down here, I needed to have an engineer to like do anything in the studio. And now I'm at a place where I can confidently re record demos by myself and create. And I've learned so much about what it means to be an empowered creator um, in a, when I left LA, that was like kind of not what I was planning on at all. And I think what I've recognized is that creative autonomy and that creative agency and that creative knowledge, like which kind of seeps into like legal knowledge, honestly, like what does it mean to create original IP and protect your original IP? Like these were yeah. not terms that I was thinking of at all when I like, you know, dared to slingshot myself down here in LA and, and try to get into as many studios and rooms as possible. My approach and is a lot more, uh, informed now yeah so you do you find that just being around so many other creatives allows you to learn at an accelerated rate in terms of like the legal issues and the ip issues and um things that artists really need in order to survive sure yeah i think for me honestly like it's la has been this interesting kind of tension between that um, really rich creative community where people are, you know, down here, it's like to be a working creative is commonplace to, you know, this is a economy that unlike what I left in Seattle, centers creative, um, you know, production at the center of its economy. And so it's like you, you can't, you can't 
run the economy in Los Angeles without creatives, right? And without, you know, writers, without musicians, without um, directors, without all, you know, all the folks that make it go versus, you know, in Seattle, I felt like what I did as a creative was very much an outlier in the primary economy and the and the kind of like center of the city. I always felt like I was auxiliary, that I was kind of at the mercy of that, of the success of the tech industry in order right. to like, um, should we wait? Sorry, that's also a thing. I mean, <laughs> helicopters are a thing anywhere in LA, but I live close to like two, uh, two uh, hospitals. So, no. um, well, I think it adds a lot of character. Oh, does it to add? Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the war zone. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I was just like, so basically, in, I think growing or being in Seattle, I, as an artist, I started feeling like I was kind of at the mercy of the generosity of the economy the, that I lived of in. Of the tech industry, basically, I said, right? Yeah, I mean, almost exclusively. I mean, Seattle's become such a company town now. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I was a beneficiary of that. Like, I had a band, or I continue to have a band in Seattle called The Flavor Blue. And, you know, we're really, you know, I'd like to think that we're fun on our own, right? But we're really great for corporate events. And our corporate event game up in Seattle is great. Like, I, I can't imagine doing the types of corporate events in LA, you know, that we can do up in Seattle. And in some way, the arts are funded up there. Um, but I think for me, as somebody who's interested in having a position of leadership and ownership and agency, I just didn't ever really see myself being able to build it because the infrastructure wasn't there. Versus in Los Angeles, like this city is built on an infrastructure of creative production, um, you know, and that not even giving like a quality to it, like whether that's like, like independent creative production or very corporate creative production. But there's a lot of people who identify as working creatives that live here in Los Angeles. And so it's really like comforting and cool to be like a tiny little goldfish, like in this enormous city um, versus like in Seattle, I felt like I was one of a handful of goldfish swimming around in a tiny, you know, right. pond. Um, but I think, you know, also in LA, like it's, been the loneliest place I've ever lived. And, you know, I've had to learn how to really educate myself. And I was really in Seattle, like I came from a place of really rich community where I really was pushed to create because of my community and because of the encouragement of my community. And that all kind of went away when I moved to Los Angeles. Like, I'm not like going to the same coffee shop and seeing 20 people that I know that like all love me and are, in, are like invested in my success. Like when everybody out here is kind of fending for themselves. And so I had to build up a much stronger sense of of self, of creative self. Um, and, and, you know, and because, and then kind of like, I think in LA, like there's just so many kind of missed connections and it's so hard to get places and the culture is kind of a lot. Um, I mean, I hate saying flakier cause I feel like that's just like a cop out, but just everybody is just the hustle is, is the hustle for everybody and nobody owes you shit. So, like, right. <laughs> and I think like for me, what I recognize is like, I have to be a much stronger, confident creator in connecting with other people. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been a challenge. Well, it's, it's interesting how you're putting that because you're actually, your spin on it is, you know, it, it's a challenge and it allows you to focus in on your specific type of creativity and what your goals are totally. um in a so in a way the geography is affecting how you grow as an artist oh big time and yeah. i think for me again like coming from a city like seattle where i felt like such an outlier where i didn't even really think it was possible to be a professional songwriter the way that i wanted to be i felt I was in kind of like a rarefied position and because of my work with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis I was like had worked with like 
like the most successful like independent music act to come out of Seattle in like X number of years. So it's like it was very quantifiable there. Like I had this kind of like not absolute, but like this relative like accomplishment that I could kind of like hang my hat on or like allow me to leverage up in LA. Like that's not a remarkable success, you know, and like nothing that I do is remarkable at all. In (laughs) fact, it's like pretty commonplace and like a little boring. So it's like, who are you outside of that? Like of of your kind of like special title in your small town. And again, obviously Seattle, super rich musical history, and it's such an honor and such a privilege to have been shaped by that city and to be influenced by that city and to continue to call that city home and to continue to be connected to Seattle. You know, I just spent like almost two weeks up there and I'm going back again in like two weeks just be through shows and and everything. And, you know, I'm really, really thankful to have had I don't think I would have I would be an independent artist or a songwriter or what have you, if it weren't for Seattle. But I think also I realized that the infrastructure there was lacking. And so my hope and desire is to be as successful as possible starting from the ground here in LA so that I can invest both my knowledge and my money back into Seattle to help build those that type of infrastructure so that artists that are developing in Seattle at the very least have like a better sense of the lay of the land of the music industry and how to operate and navigate within it. Um, if not, if not like giving people the opportunity to stay in Seattle and actually still continue and develop as world-class professionals. So what, what do you think that the Grammy nomination did for you or didn't do for you um, here in Los Angeles? I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, the, the bar is, is a lot higher here in terms of accomplishments and recognition, but what, what what do you think that Grammy nomination did? I mean, yeah, I don't want to be dramatic, but like it it completely transformed my life. Like I had never been to Los Angeles for like work before before Grammy week. And I think like I was shocked when we got nominated. I was shocked when I realized that I was like literally listed on the nomination. Like everything with that that um experience all of it was so unanticipated. Um, that it was all just kind of like trying to move through it. But being down here in LA at that week, you know, I got put into writing sessions. Um, so as a songwriter, I my focus is lyric and melody. And so what we call that um, for writing is top lining. So it's like, you can literally think about it. It's like the top line. It's like the line that if you're looking at sheet music, it's usually like whoever is like whatever the lyric and the melody is that the vocalist is singing, that's the top of the line. So usually there'll be producers and then I'll be brought in as a top liner. Um, and I literally had to Google that phrase when the people started <laughs> asking me like, oh, like you're coming down to LA for Grammy week. Like, do you want to do some top line sessions? And I was like, oh, is that a company top line? <laughs> um, and so I just recognized when I came down here, you know, it was interesting, like being at the Grammys themselves, like I just realized how like also ordinary it was, even as a nominee, like you're there and I'm sitting in like section 112, like row 14 of Staples Center. Like I'm not like it's not on I'm not on the ground floor by any means like right. that, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, you're seeing all these people go by and you're recognizing like, OK, even this feels like an insane accomplishment or an insane like accolade. But it's really, again, like kind of commonplace, like who cares? Um, but being down here and doing my first 
uh, studio sessions where I was coming in as a top liner and people were like, oh, she's, you know, she's nominated for a Grammy this year because of her songwriting, because of her vocal work. And that was, it was a really important affirmation for me, not even because of the nomination, but just because of, because it gave me one single calling card, which ultimately like again like wasn't isn't as remarkable as it sounds but it just gave me one in and the one in is like honestly the most valuable thing that you can ever get as in a city like LA where there's so many people vying to do what you do um and I just fell in love I was just you know I was just just pulsing on adrenaline, like not sleeping for like a week, just like so hype. And I was like, oh my God, like, could this be my life? Could I do this for a living? Like, could I actually like this thing that felt like such a fluke and this thing that I felt like I had been like doing despite my best, like what was best for me? Like I realized like, oh, maybe this is what's best for me. Like maybe embracing my passion and my love for songwriting could actually be the thing that makes me successful and not the thing that I'm doing while I'm trying to be successful in another field or another way. Um, And it's when I fell in love with LA and it's when I fell in love with the idea of being here. And um, after Grammy week, I like started compulsively coming down to LA. Anytime I had a week in my schedule where I didn't have anything really firmly planned, I'd buy a ticket and I'd come down here and I'd crash on people's couches and I'd get booked up in studio sessions I was just so like I was really addicted to the adrenaline rush and the creativity of coming together with strangers and making stuff happen um and yeah so in that way it like completely transformed my my path and my passion and it was to the point where like a year after that you know it was a year after the Grammys and I like looked in the mirror and I was like by this time next year I'm going to be living in Los Angeles like there's no like I can't let another year go by with me but like just having this dream lying in wait in another city and me just like dipping my toe into it. Well, I was going to ask you that question when you, you know, what point in your life you realized that this was the thing that you were going to do. And it sounds like Grammy week was probably that week, or at least the week that you, the, the time in your life when you realized <clears throat> it was possible. Totally. And it was like a very, you know, fortunate affirmation. Obviously not everybody gets like that type of accolade and even you know with every like very credible critique of like the Grammy organization and the Recording Academy and like what awards even mean and like what have you and but it, like I think for me what it was and I don't think it had to have been a Grammy nomination because like it could have been something else like it just like and it's not even like it, the nomination wasn't even like a demonstration of demand even it was just kind of like I think in in music or in any creative field it's like you have to you have to honor a win like I think it's easy to just be like oh okay like this happened but what's next and I think for that like it both really humbled me like again like being at the Grammys I'm like ooh, like nobody literally nobody cares like I, I could not be here and it'd be <laughs> totally fine like you know what I mean like right. the, I, I, the, you know and obviously I was it was awesome to like give my mom the experience of like I, my mom was my date and like you know, we got to walk through the red carpet but you're it, you're on the red carpet and you're like I'm actually not special at all. Like I am like, I am a very ordinary person here, even though I'm like all dressed up and like, you know, I might have access to this thing, but it's like, you know, like who cares? Like, sure. Like you worked on an album that was nominated, like whatever. Um, and so in some ways it was like incredibly humbling. Cause it's like, nobody really gave a shit yeah. but on the flip. Like 
you know, it gave me the opportunity and the access to come down here and have those first creative sessions and um, and just realize like, oh, okay, there's a whole world here that I could tap into. And it's not just us in our little bubble up in our town where everything feels so new. And, uh, you know, because it was unanticipated, you also don't know if it would ever, ever happen again. And I was like, I'm too, I'm too like intrigued by the possibility of, of doing something more. Yeah. Um, and I felt like here was the only place that I could do it. And, and it sounds like, and it feels like from the way you describe the Grammy nomination and, and the hustle of mm-hmm. Los Angeles that no matter what accolades you receive and no matter how cool it is uh, that you were able to collaborate with, you know, awesome musicians and, right. and iconic uh, artists, it is always a hustle. I mean, yeah. it's like you, you've got to be creating and making connections and thinking about how to move forward all the time. Totally. And I, I think another thing that I've thought about too is like, you know, and and people come and people go, especially in the music industry, like disposability is a, an all time high. Like you can have and it's always been that way. Right. The like the the one hit wonder phenomenon. Right. The idea that you could actually hit number one on the billboard charts or you could have a really successful run at radio. And so few artists experience that and many artists experience that and then never have it again. So the idea of like hitting a peak at some kind of arbitrary-ish point in your career and then never being able to kind of even remotely replicate that type of success, that's like pretty demoralizing, right? <laughs> so now on the on now looking at it, looking, you know, whatever, and just being like, well, I just hope that everybody invested properly so that they actually have something to go off of because, you know, it's hard to know. Um, but I think there's always going to be a hustle. There's always relativity. Like I think, and that's what's again kind of refreshing in Seattle or sorry in Los Angeles is that like, you know, you have to kind of create your own journey for yourself and determine for yourself what success looks like. What is what is sustainability as a as a creative? Like what does it look like to wake up in the morning and feel really good about yourself? Um, and I think for a lot of working creatives, it's a struggle. And and um, I'm really thankful to have given myself the space and time to experience that. Like I've experienced, I think some of the, like the lowest creative lows that I've ever felt in LA, but I've also, you know, been surrounded by a room of people who are literally changing like the, the sound of music and the shape of music and making the most influential, like pop and R and B and hip hop music. And, and I'm, I'm in the room as a peer. And so it's like, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's it's just kind of determinate on how hard you're willing to work for um, feeling good and feeling strong about what you do. And I think here it's pretty undisputable that like you can reach the highest heights here. The res- all the resources are available for to you here. Um, it's not the best environment for everybody, obviously, like anywhere. Um, and I think a lot of people really get either consumed by it like it's like kind of the quicksand of the soul or people get really like agitated by it. Like, uh, like I hate this culture. I hate the way that everybody's so flaky or I hate how like nobody ever leaves their little bubble and like X, Y, and Z. But sometimes that agitation can create really great art. Yeah. Have you, I'm a, this is a little off topic here, but have you thought about how to change that culture in Los Angeles or is it so <laughs> set in stone that it's just, you're just going to have to deal with it and adapt because I, I mean, I was in an Uber yesterday with a, the driver was from Jordan and he had been here for two years. Um, he was in a master's program for business administration, going to school and, you know, just trying to make a living. I asked him um, if he had made any friends here and he said, I have nobody. Mm. 
after two years. And it, it kind of, I mean, it's just a real bummer to hear that someone can be um, in a town for two whole years and not have a single friend. Yeah, uh, um, so, but I'm just wondering if the, the culture here in Los Angeles where everybody's in their own bubble um, is if there's um, a change in the tide that you're seeing where people are trying to create community through um, changing the, the infrastructure of towns themselves, or just are you finding your community just in your uh, vocation, which is, you know, the arts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really broad to say like the culture of Los Angeles or even like the culture of these like three blocks that we live on. I think like everybody has their own individualized experience. And like, while I'd say that there's definitely like trends in the way that people socialize and treat each other. And again, like, as I've said, like LA is the loneliest place I've ever lived. Um, But I've actually been taking that loneliness as a gift, like as somebody who myself is like really like compulsively social and loves being within and around community that loneliness has been really important to my self-development in this new stage of myself as a creative. Um, And yeah, of course, it's like anywhere. You just have to find your people, right? So, I mean, I would like all due respect to the folks that there's so many people who are here on the ground doing arts community and have done arts organizing um, here in LA that, you know, these communities have existed for decades. And oftentimes, like, I think of like Patrice Cullors, for example, my friend who um, is one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, who like, you know, has a very rich um, organizing community that she came from as a teenager and now is leading. You know, I mean, there's a lot of folks that are not only just like gathering together in community, but are doing really important social impact work. Um, And that's what I've been really inspired by. Um, I think for me, like social impact and social justice work and my identity as an artist have always been really fused. It's like kind of the tradition that I came out of. Um, And so it was a little challenging for me for sure to feel like I had a really rich, I I had really cool friends and like really awesome friends that lived in LA that were all like incredible creatives and incredible professionals, but like there wasn't really that thread tying us all together or having us gather in place versus in Seattle when, you know, we'd all come together for a fundraiser showcase or there was always like a cause that we were like championing or what have you. Um, But I've recently in the last year been able to kind of uh, find my folks or at least find folks that are like you know, I went, for example, like I went to an event um, last or two days ago at this um, gallery space called, I think it's called, pronounced New Two. I'm not sure. It's N-O-U-S-T-O-U-S. Um, and it's like in the heart of Chinatown in L.A. And it's this event called Proud Asian Woman. And it's basically this one girl that was like, I realized that Asian American women don't ever come together and talk about our experiences and like and that and so it's just a gathering that happens every month and it's you know there was probably like 25 women there and it was just like really cool to be like you know and we're all driving in from the valley from Westminster from like Long Beach like everybody's coming from like all these like myriad places which wouldn't even be considered in the same like state in a lot of different places like LA is so big um but everybody coming together and just being like okay like we're all like cool creatives like we're all people who are like living our lives and we're just like creating space for community and there's a lot I, there, what I will say in LA is there's a lot of space like yeah. there's a lot of space to activate um, and then there's a lot of professionals that kind of activate spaces where they're living so it's just kind of about like creating that through line between like you know like we're coming together as creatives to like get a creative project knocked out and being like we're coming together as creatives to think about how um, to think about our experiences to shape our social perspectives and to think about how we can create impact in our communities nice 
So how did you find spoken word and how does it fit into your creative toolkit? Sure. So I found spoken word through an organization called Youth Speaks, which is based in San Francisco. Um, it was created in San Francisco, and now there's kind of like chapters all across the country. Um, it's like a really incredible nonprofit that created space and support for young poets to develop their original work, perform their original work. Um, and I went when I was like a sophomore, I think in high school, I went to one of their grand slams, which happened like in like uh, it's. Yeah, it was the Opera House, right? Or yeah, I mean, basically where they do opera in San Francisco, like that's where the spoken word poetry slam was for teens. Um, and I went, and it was like the most electrifying night of live performance that I had ever seen. My friend was performing, and I saw just like twelve young people get up there in front of like two thousand people and just rip and like and give incredibly captivating performances of their personal experiences um and their personal perspectives and I just like was so in love with it I had done theater and done choir my whole life but it was like the first time I had seen I mean because basically spoken word is original like monologue theater so and it was just so captivating to me as a performer I was like oh maybe I could actually write my own script I don't have to keep like convincingly performing other parts I could actually be the character like I could be the role I could be the protagonist in the story when you know I loved theater but I never saw somebody like me like be in the center right so um spoken word to me was like such a thrilling idea as a as a burgeoning creative person and then also I think the community aspect was really attractive to me too like feeling kind of you know on the outside or not or feeling kind of weird like it was this community of really incredibly confident incredibly like emotionally intelligent um, people of incredibly diverse and disparate backgrounds coming together to really like honor each other's stories and I was like there's such a power in this I am so moved like I feel so charged up and I know like you know and the slams in in San Francisco it's like it's thousands of people and it's thousands of adults it's a lot of like older people that come and because they realize the power and the energy of these young people to truly transform um and so I was really in love with that idea and it really has been the the foundation of my arts practice of like the way that I approach um I think songwriting is just kind of a permutation of poetry for sure I mean it's basically an extension of poetry um and so for me I think that's the reason why I've come back to this craft and to this art form um and the kind of building blocks of the power the power the raw power of live performance of your own story you know, and like I'm like, I think in my journey, I've been like, how can I apply what I learned as a teenager in that community where I felt like so energized and so inspired and so ready to get out and like shift the world with my bare hands? Um, like, how can I bring that type of vitality to songwriting and to music and to like pop music at that? Um, and I think, you know, I've really it gave me so many tools to to approach writing to basically like writing at you speaks and then when i moved up to seattle i was part of you speak seattle and and then actually ended up leading the organization up there for a little bit and um just the idea of coming together with people that you don't know and writing on a same prompt and sharing just like that simple act of bearing witness to other people's stories and having the um opportunity to feel heard and feel seen like it's a truly like revolutionary act and it's and, it, and it's pretty simple to do right well I, the one of the one word i was listening for and i didn't hear was um uh 
fear or um, scary because that's that's those are the words that come to mind when I think about spoken word because of the vulnerability of being up on stage and you're not showing up with a script. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never done spoken word, but I've seen it. And to me, it seems like extreme, extreme improv, but it's solo <laughs> and it's, it's raw. And it's like coming from a place that is just where very few people tap into and reveal. You know, sure, so that's yeah. that's what's scary for me thinking about doing it myself. I don't know that I could. Right. Well, I would say like most spoken word experiences aren't impro- improvised. Usually people are like it's I, I'm like trying to think of a time where I've went where like the event was like exclusively like freestyle poetry. Um, but I would argue almost like that would be less vulnerable than the idea of like you do have a script, but you wrote the script and if oh. the script sucks, then that's then, your on yeah. you. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's not you can't blame a writer, you can't blame right. a director, you can't blame whatever. It's like that's all you. And I do think I think you know, when I when I was younger, it was less scary for me because I was just kind of like, fuck it. Like I, I didn't have an I think as we get older, we get like more neurotic and just more informed of the consequences of failure and of our actions and you know we get a little more freaked out but I think that's like the power like if you know if anybody listening has you know lives in a city or doesn't even like in small towns like going and and seeing young people perform and particularly perform their own poetry is so inspiring because of that there our fear our like societal fear hasn't fully developed I think when we're teens um I mean for some it has but I think like in that place especially when you feel really emboldened and supported by uh you know community and by the infrastructure of a nonprofit and x y and z um you know people step into that brave space a lot easier and then I think we build those walls as we get older and I've definitely had to confront that like I look back at my 17 year old self and I'm like damn she was a, such a badass and like and I felt at the time like this you know mean as a teen I was just like oh like someday I'll be this or I'll have the confidence to do this or x y and z and I look back now and I'm just like damn I wish I could like you know, I, I want to. It's not that I wish and I can't, but it, like I my desire is to is to burrow back and to like really tap into that that confidence, that courage. It wasn't even confidence at that point because I think I was I was not even that confident, but I was just ready to fling myself into courageously into a space right. like and try it. Yeah. You know, and I think that we I I've certainly become risk adverse as I have gotten older. <laughs> and I think we we all do and we we avoid flinging ourselves even if we're not confident like you can be full of fear and fling yourself courageously into it into a new space um and yeah i think that like tapping into that youthful space of like i'm just fucking gonna do it <laughs> is really important so how, how did you connect with ryan lewis and macklemore um so when i moved to seattle um i got a couple of like i was just like an indie hip-hop fan i had just been listening to to underground rap music for a really long time and so when I moved to Seattle I you know I was asking around like who are the local rappers I really want to connect and um a couple of the CDs that I got um off top were uh, a band called Blue Scholars which became like my like absolute like obsessed I was obsessed like favorite band like it was like all I like memorized their self-titled album in like a matter of days um and then I also got Macklemore's like debut LP that he had just released um the language of my world and it was like a li- like there was a couple songs where I was like this is kind of questionable but for the most part like I really loved it and I loved how creative he was is and- that the one with the city on it or is that before uh, that oh yeah 
Okay. Probably. Yeah. I don't know. He's on it. It's yellow. He's like sketched. Um, and uh, yeah. And like, so I had known of him since then. And I had been like, I had known his music. I had gone and seen him perform. And like, you know, Ben had always like from that point on, like kind of just been a bit of a local celebrity. Like he had been, you know, performing, um, and people knew of him and he was in the scene. Um, and so I'm trying to think of how it all connected. I think what happened was I started working for Blue Scholars like over a couple of years or I, something about like I became friends with them or something like which was like the coolest thing that had ever happened to me in my life was like my favorite band was like actually wanted to be friends with me. And I was like, this is so tight. <laughs> um, and through them... I think what happened, my, because my, I ended up being in a rap group and then I think we opened for Macklemore at one point, but like we didn't really talk and I think I was like intimidated and he wasn't sober yet and so everything was just kind of not a good vibe. Um, and then I think Blue Scholars ultimately, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Blue Scholars ended up, like the the DJ from Blue Scholars' brother was a music video director and he and I were talking and he was like, I'm going to pitch this music video to Macklemore and Ryan Lewis because they just started making music as a duo. I didn't know Ryan Lewis at the time. And he was like, I'm going to pitch this song because, um, you know, they're not done with this song yet, but I think it has a lot of potential, but I'm looking for a producer. And I was like, I'll do it. Like, I don't even know what being a music video producer means, but like, I am down. Like, I, I would love to like get in the room and like be of service and like work with these people because I was like, I'm inspired by them, whatever. And this was like right after Ben had gotten sober and like they had released the their very first project and I was just really inspired by like his transformation. Um, so then we came together and it was like the four of us. It was Zia Mohadra Jospi, the director, Macklemore, Ryan Lewis and me and the four of us like spent months creating this music video and ultimately this song kind of from scratch and from the ground up. Um, and White it was, Walls? No, oh. uh, the song called Wings. Oh, okay. So yeah, Wings, it yeah. was a song that, um, and then I, like in producing the music video, I ended up actually co-writing the chorus with Ben and Ryan and then directing a children's chorus to perform oh my the chorus. Um, and it was this whole holistic artistic experience. And it was really through that, that I obviously gained access to them, but also developed like a really close working relationship with them to the point that when, you know, things started picking up and they were putting together their, their album, you know, they were like talking about the thrift shop video. And this was, I, I had worked with them on white walls and I had, and Oh, actually, I guess I'll say this too. Once, um, we were done with that music video experience and then was working on what would become the heist him and I would actually meet up at coffee shops and do writing exercises like the ones that I had gotten from you speak so like the idea of getting together and doing free writing um, sessions and you know I would either like bring some source material which is like kind of my practice now like I'll bring a poem or I'll bring like lyrics from something and then read them and then maybe take a, a phrase from that or like a theme from that and then just do some like creative free writing for 20 minutes and then share and I had talked to him about it because you know we had had some meeting I think about when we were in pre-production for thrift shop and or no, no no this is way before this is way before thrift shop was even written we were doing I think maybe we were just still in the wings production thing and he had kind of been talking to me about the fact that he felt like he was kind of creatively stuck and I was like well you know what I do when I'm creatively stuck is I do free writing and he was like okay well maybe we could do like I actually remember he like he was like, oh, okay, like maybe I'll hit you up about that. I'm like, okay, let me know. I'm always around. Like we can always do that anytime. And we, you know, we had had breakfast and we left. And then like 15 minutes later, he called me and he's like, actually, are you free for the next like hour? And I was like, I am actually, I was just going to a coffee shop and going to do some work. So he ended up meeting up with me and that was like our first free writing session. And he, and that was just a place where you didn't have to like sit down and listen to a beat and write a hot 16. Like we're in a coffee shop. We're just like writing 
what's on our mind and just like getting that muscle flexing in a way where it didn't have to be so show and prove. It's really just like for the sake of strengthening the creative muscle. Um, And you're not so precious with the words. Precisely. Yeah. And yeah. And none of it's for, you don't have to, it's, you're not getting a grade at the end of it. You're not going to like put it up on YouTube at the end of it. You're just like, if you're creating for the sake of creating and also just loosening up the, you know, if you're feeling stuck. Um, And it was through that process that I had been kind of like ideating for our next session where I came back and I was like, you know, you just bought this Cadillac and it's like a really pretty car, but it doesn't run and you had to basically push it off the lot and you brought it in. I was like, this is kind of like a sick metaphor for being an independent artist. Like on the surface, it looks like, oh, you're doing it, you're balling, like whatever. And then on the inside, it's like the engine doesn't work. Like you can barely roll it off the lot. And I was like, this might be like a cool metaphor for a song. And so we did some free writing on that. And then like maybe a couple weeks later, he came back to me and he was like, I actually wrote three verses like about that. Do you want to come in and like maybe we can like try writing a hook? And then I was like tight and I was coming in being like, ooh, I want to be a professional songwriter. So I was like, I'm going to write a hook for like a pop star or something. I don't know. And so we ended up writing a hook for it. And, you know, Ryan was like, oh, maybe we should just like do a voice note of it. And Ben was like, well, we're in the studio. You might as well just like go in and track it. And I was like, okay. So, of course, I like hop in. And then Ryan like is just so... He's just like such – Ryan is like – like nobody's like him creatively. Like he's just such a fucking freight train. So once <laughs> I get in the studio, of course, this is not – you can't just casually record this idea. So, of course, now we're like doing crazy takes. Okay, try a harmony. Okay, actually, now I think the harmony is the lead. So let's do the harmony three more times. So I'm in the studio and then, you know, I walk out and I'm like, okay, we just like fully tracked that. Now I know on in L.A., like – like that's what I would do anyway, even if I knew the song was going to somebody else. Like you would you want it to sound when somebody's hearing the song and they're you're trying to sell them on whether, you know, like they should take the song and they should they should, you know, like use the song. You want it to sound as if it could go to radio tomorrow, but you're like, Oh, I want my artist voice on it instead of this girl kind of thing. Right. But with this, like I ended up tracking it and they kept me. They kept me on. And like that choice for them, I mean, let alone that choice for them to like bring me into the studio and work on the hook and that choice to like, you know, like record me in the booth instead of just doing a voice note, like their choice to be like, no, we want Hollis to be on this. Like her voice will be good. Yeah. You know, even though I'm like, oh, I'm like, can I be a professional like recording artist? I have like a really crazy lisp and like, and I don't know if I'm like the most virtuosic singer in X, Y, and Z. Um, but it was really like, and they vouched for me from jump. I think Ben, like once he knew that I sang, like he always like was more than anything, like, I just feel like working with them really emboldened me to feel like I could really do anything and that I could, like, be valued for it. Um, so that's how White Walls came to be. <laughs> and that hook, that, that hook was amazing, though. I mean, that, that is one of the best hooks oh, of, of the era. Oh, it's so and, nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, like, they're, they're so gifted. Like, and it was, it was such a pleasure to work with them on that. Um, and then, yeah, and then basically while with that everything was coming to pass and like everything was blowing up and they were like we're shooting this video for thrift shop and they kept like kind of not like i mean whatever i'm not trying to be rude but they were kind of complaining to me about it and i was like do you need help like do you need me (laughs) to do this because you guys seem pretty fucking busy and you're trying to produce this music video and they were like yeah okay i was like all right and i kind of like i was like i want to do this like this is something I really want to do. So I just like kind of started working, like even though they hadn't really like locked me in yet. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm going to call Goodwill and see like what's going on. Like I'm going to, oh, value. We walked, like they they literally, Ryan, Magamore, Ryan Lewis and their manager walked into Value Village 
where a lot of the video ended up being shot and they were like can we shoot here and the and the manager was like no and I was like no I'm not taking that as an answer and so I like called the like comms department or I called like the you know like somebody like the the marketing and like communication department and I was like I have this opportunity to like collaborate with this da da da, and I just like sold like corporate on it, and then corporate was like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, we'll make it work. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, like I just I just loved the opportunity to step into a place of leadership in their team, and they do everything like they they're the ones that, and now they own everything, which has also been like doubly inspiring, but. You know, they were always the creative center. They never had a creative director come in and tell them, like, where to be and how to look. Like, they never had an executive producer come in and tell them, like, okay, this beat's fire and this beat's trash, like, that kind of thing. Like, I remember when they met with L.A. Reid, like, after the album had come out and everything had exploded, like, L.A. Reid had told them in the meeting, like, started the meeting with being, like, if you had signed to our label, we would have totally fucked up your debut album. Like, there's no, like, what you guys did no no label or A&R could have even remotely come close like if their their creativity would have been completely like bottlenecked and completely like, well they, they took three years I mean from what I've read anyway, mm-hmm. they took three years to self-record yeah. self-produce yep. self-publish mm-hmm. self-distribute the album yep. and and so did you learn how to be that independent business-wise by being part of that project totally and back to talking about seattle versus la there was no other way to be there's no other model like especially if you're in rap there's no way to do it except for do it by yourself and it was kind of this like gloriously naive time that we lived in where it was just like of course you would self-record yourself and self-produce yourself and self-publish yourself and i mean i think people weren't even thinking about publishing like self-distribute you would self you know like everything was was independent because there was no other way to be. There was no, there's no corporate infrastructure. There's no label. Like this is not happening for rap. You know what I mean? And so it's like, this is who you are. Like you don't like, unless you want to move and be fake and like move to another city and like try to make it there or whatever. Like that, I don't think we ever saw any successful like thing of that. Sir Mix-a-Lot rose to prominence because he was literally sitting on the bus going up and down Rainier selling mixtapes on the back and the back of the bus and then you got to know like oh if you want to get one of the Sir Mix-a-Lot's tapes you have to go find him at the back of the bus or you have to go find him when he's pulling up and literally selling out the trunk and that's how that was our biggest like hip-hop success in Seattle and he literally was self-made and now is self-published so it's like you know and obviously you had to partner with a with a label at the time because there was no other way that you were going to get on radio or like whatever but you know like he was the prototype and he was as independent as you can be so like that's not it was that wasn't extraordinary do you know what I mean like what, what what's extraordinary is that like these two guys and I would say like I've never at that time I had never seen two people work as hard as they did and be so consumed and in with such belief in their vision like that singular like obsession like obsessive creativity that was them to a T and it you know, they invested all of their best and waking creative hours in like that project. And I was like, that is the power of believing and the power of time, like beyond like 10,000 hours, like far beyond, you know what I mean? And, and being able to be there and to be in service of that and to learn and soak up game, like, yeah, totally transformed the way that I understood what was possible. So how did you learn the business aspect of it as it pertained to you and your own interests because um you use the word you hadn't been locked in yet um when you were working with them on some of these videos and these ideas so it sounds like you are you're helping them creatively 
Um, you're part of their team. Mm-hmm. You know, they're respecting your ideas and incorporating you into their um, work plan. But how do you protect yourself and get paid and make sure that you're treated fairly um, in that process? Uh, I mean, the first video I made for Wings, I made, I literally it was a volunteer position. I made no dollars, which is like when I look back at how much work I did and like knowing now like what a day rate would have been for me as a line producer, as like a coordinator, like casting and just like all the stuff that I ended up doing, like it's wild. But it's like, yeah. And then like with the thrift shop video, I got paid like a thousand dollars as a producer for a Oh audition. my goodness. <laughs> for <laughs> getting in the- like tight to me. And yeah. frankly, I was the number two highest paid person on set. You made Value Village happen, man. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, whatever. But I think, <laughs> but it came, you know, it came back a hundredfold in other ways. So it's like, yeah. I, it's like kind of like, I think about the concept of karmic yoga yeah. and like the idea of like doing things in service and in practice and uh, that, you know, just being an investment in self and like really finding the value inherently in that work. And like, I would have, you know, I did the first video for free because it was so valuable to me to be part of that process and to do something that I had never done before and to work with people who inspired me. And it was so, you know, and I, I will also say this, I had the great privilege of having a full ride scholarship to college. So I didn't have student debt. If I had had student debt, there's probably no way that I'd be doing what I'm doing now because that would have been so inhibiting to me. And I couldn't have taken the opportunity while I was working my like shitty part-time nonprofit job to like invest myself fully into this other creative venture like I, I wouldn't have had the the ability to do that um so I think for me like um you know learning how to protect myself and to value myself is an ongoing uh question it's an ongoing conversation that I have um but I think in that process and like because we ascended to such a height where like oh okay now I'm learning what publishing is for the first time I'm learning what music copyright is for the first time I'm learning what a publishing rights organization does and the way that they pay out royalties and how to protect yourself there and the fact that I need to like run my publishing company and like do I need to sign with the publisher what's an admin deal versus a co-publishing deal all these things like all of the stuff that I've learned since then like it was definitely catalyzed from working with them but we were all learning about it together because they hadn't achieved that kind of success either and they didn't know how you treat side artists or how you like distribute publishing in a fair way or like the correct rate to pay somebody when you guys are going on the road and you're just building up the debt that you had amassed from like self-producing and self-publishing your project and you're not going to get paid for another nine months because it takes three quarters for those royalties to hit it is like it's such like a fraught world and none of us knew what the fuck we were doing in it and so like and it was a learning process i think everybody would acknowledge in that like it was it was a clumsy learning process but i think we all i know i feel like i got to the point where like i learned what it was to assert myself i learned what it was to have difficult conversations i learned what it was to assert like value um and to and to and to understand like and to read a contract and to be able to be like okay if i don't understand what this means then i have a right to understand it versus just like gately signing on the dotted line and being like i'm so hyped to i'm so thankful to be a part of it yeah um and i think we're all at a place now where we're you know obviously much more educated um but i i'm at a place where i really feel a lot more empowered um, you know, we all did this because of like creative and independent experimentation. And so now like my charge and like what I'm really passionate about is, is artist education and for artists to better understand how 
the mechanisms of the music industry work and um, or any creative industry and how best to protect yourself. Well, and, it, and also, you know, going back to the, the work that you did for free or for very little on that project, um, you're, you did have your name specifically listed on the Grammy nomination and, right. and you've got all these, you know, and, I, yeah. I think the, the karma has definitely paid off for you. It sounds like. Yeah, you know, you know. totally. I mean, I, w- I would say I'm so grateful. I mean, like, and it completely transformed my life in a number of different ways. And again, there was like insane highs, there's insane lows. Like there's lots of dark nights of the soul for everybody, Yeah, you know? Um, but I think, you know, ultimately just knowing like every, every experience is meant to inform the next step you take. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I saw a Ted talk that you did um, for university of Washington TEDx. And, uh, you talked about your mom. Can you tell us what she means to you in terms of your journey and how you got to where you're at today? Totally. So my mom, um, is just like a really amazing, resilient woman. She moved to the United States by herself when she was 19 years old and just like made it work. Um, and, uh, when I was growing up, like when she was pregnant with me, actually, she had, um, just purchased a Chinese restaurant in our like small suburb in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area called Petaluma. And um, I basically grew up in the, in the restaurant that she owned and then she ran. And, you know, now looking back on it, I'm like, wow, how amazing. Like I, you know, come from like an immigrant. You know, my, my mother is an immigrant. She is an entrepreneur. She's like such a strong, um, forthright woman who's so confident in herself and leads and um, – you know, it was really amazing to also grow up in a place where, like, it's about hospitality and feeding people and bringing together around people, bringing people together around food. Um, so it was this really incredible environment to kind of nourish me. Um, and yeah, I mean, my mom has always like believed in me. Like, she's always believed in me, obviously. Um, and she was the person who really gave me access to arts education and encouraged me to pursue singing, pursue theater. Um, she always like really. Um, believed in me as a performer and I think my path deviated a lot from what I think her ideals were at the time in terms of what performance looked like like can't say she was a super big fan of spoken word and like <laughs> me using my personal mining my personal experiences for content yeah. uh you know can't say she was a super big fan when I started rapping and like was like pulling up to these little like tiny clubs and restaurants performing like you know but obviously you know once the person that her daughter's working with is in people magazine then everything's chill and once i can like bring her as my date to the grammys then right. we're okay Red um yeah and i think ultimately my mom really demonstrated showed me what it was to be like an entrepreneur to be like a really strong woman and to be a woman that like wouldn't take no for an answer that wouldn't accept setbacks as defeats um and you know i again like my path deviated so kind of like away from I think what her ideal was for me but at the same time it's like it's because of the foundation and the sacrifices that she made um that gave me the opportunity to develop and explore as a creative person and she still continues to support me in that you you've talked about your 17 year old self a little bit today um if if you could go back and talk to your 17 year old self Mm -hmm. um what would you tell her and what what advice would you give her Um, I think what I would tell my 17 year old self is like, you don't, you don't need other people to make you great. You're great on your own. And you, I think like one thing that I wish that I had developed more as a young person is just my creative autonomy. Like, 
you don't need other people to be creative. You don't need other people to um, tell you that you're doing a good job for you to do good work. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm just like, I would never, I would like in this hypothetical game, like I wouldn't want to say enough to like have myself change courses radically, obviously, because I'm so grateful for the course that I've taken. Um, but I think like, I want my 17 year old self to like, to know that like, what's possible is so much bigger than what you are even dreaming for yourself right now. And what, what did you study in college? History. And was there any point when you were studying history where you were like, you know, I'm going to be a history professor? Mm -hmm. or, Definitely. Yeah. I, when I graduated from, from, from college, I was like, I was like, I'll, I'll probably take a couple years and then try to pursue a PhD. And then what changed? <laughs> the rap game. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just got consumed by doing my own thing. Like I really, I saw a life in academia for myself and I was interested in it. But I think ultimately I developed a critique of the academic industrial complex. And I also just really fell in love with the idea of creating a new path for myself and being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And uh, if you were standing in front of a group of 17 year old <laughs> kids who are uh, wanting to work in the arts, you know, whatever that may be, whatever that means, um, performance arts or painting or uh, music, um, what would your advice be to them? And in, in, in say, these are middle America kids, mm -hmm. you know, they're not in big cities. Sure. Um, they're, you know, rural Kansas or, um, you know, Southern Louisiana. I'd be like, don't be racist. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I would be like, I would say, um, like you have to try a lot of stuff to know what most speaks to you. Um, and so don't ever inhibit your ability to grow or to experiment and to try. Um, and you can't wait around for permission to develop as a creative. Um, you can't wait around for somebody to give you like a smile and a nod and tell you to walk forward. Like the best way to go is to find that smile and your nod within yourself and to find that internal affirmation to believe that you're worthy of developing as a creative. Thanks for your time today and uh, sharing your story and your journey. William, thank you for asking me about it. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.